This episode of the I Save That podcast is made possible by support from SecureCath. The revolutionary SecureCath subcutaneous catheter securement device will make your job easier and save money by reducing catheter complications. Learn more at www.securacath.com. SecureCath, for the life of the line. From the Association for Vascular Access, this is the I Save That Podcast. Come with me now. Come with me now. And it's episode two, season one of the I Save That Podcast from the Association for Vascular Access in Indianapolis. This is Ramsey Nazarala, joined by Java, editor in chief and director of communications for Ava, Eric Sager. Hi there. The director of clinical education, Miss Judy Thompson. Hey there. And Ava, President-elect, Dr. Ken Symington. Good day, Ramsey. How are you? Good day, <laughs> it's a, Ramsey. It's a great day. It's great that we were renewed for another episode. I know. The the, the big uh, network bosses decided to renew Ava for a whole first season. So you'll be uh, hearing us all summer uh, through Wakova and heading into our scientific meeting in Columbus, Ohio in September. And we are all in Indianapolis right now uh, as part of our annual Board of Directors retreat that Ava conducts each year to discuss association business initiatives, uh, a lot of the work that has to go into our biggest event of the year, the annual scientific meeting. But this year we had a couple of, of big uh, initiatives that were on the radar and discussed, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about them. Uh, later in the show, we'll have Dr. Hudson Garrett on to talk about uh, the second one, which is uh, guidance around disinfection of ultrasound probes. But the first one that was mentioned uh, conspicuously at last year's scientific meeting in Phoenix, the CVAD guidelines presented by Ava. Judy, where are we at with the CVAD guidelines? Oh gosh, we are busy in the CVAD guidelines. We had hoped to have them published actually by this time, but we are going to have the best quality we can get out, and we have a couple chapters left to be written. So we still have a couple authors that are writing their sections. 85% of the sections are written and ready for, for peer review. We have a few more. As soon as we get those in, we'll get a first round edit and they'll be going to peer review. What's a chapter that's been written, reviewed, that you're especially proud of uh, thus far in the process? Complication ma- and complication management. Um, actually, my friend Ken Symington was the lead author on that section. Oh so it's exceptional. It oh, is. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I think to our credit or uh, depending on how you look at it, our discredit, we just keep making this thing bigger and bigger and longer <laughs> and longer and, and of higher quality. And yeah. So we got to stop someplace. We've got to draw the line. We're drawing the line in 2018. That's it. How big, and there's always the opportunity for revision and expansion. Um, how big is this instrument for vascular access going to be? How many pages? How, uh, is it going to be a book? Is it going to be, how, how is this going to be delivered to the vascular access uh, specialist? There'll be an option to buy a physical copy of it. Okay. But by and large, the strong push on this is digital. Because with the digital copy, we can make, we can make small updates incrementally when a big research article comes out and maybe guides practice a little bit differently. We can go change that guideline and we can push that out digitally. Right. But when a, we will review this document probably every three years, and get it reviewed and, and have it republished with a new revision number on it. Excellent. But I think the digital copy should be the way to go. Besides, we're going to have high-def videos mm-hmm. in, some really strong photography in, illustrations, animations. So you won't get those in the paper copy. 
so I really encourage people to go digital. It's everything you would expect out of a modern digital learning center. And we're really excited about it. We're learning a lot as we go along ourselves. And uh, we couldn't be more excited to see the finish line actually uh, in the near future. Yeah. Light at the end of the tunnel. There's yes. a light. There There's is. definitely a light. You can see it this time. Right? I, yeah. I can see it. You know, a couple of the other sections that we actually added, we had to add a, a section on interosseous. Because one of the tenets that we're talking about is requiring ultrasound for every central venous axis device insertion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So by requiring that, even if it's emergent, if it's emergent and you cannot get immediate access, meaning within the first couple of minutes, we say forget the central line, go I.O. Mm -hmm. So we had to have a section for I.O. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great segue into what the topic of this particular interview is going to be with Hudson Garrett and you. That's right. Things level disinfection. Sprouts sprout out of other sprouts. The, uh, on our first episode, the inaugural episode, you talked about how high-level disinfection of ultrasound probes had suddenly appeared on your radar. And we had not been talking about it, but it, was, it had this pressing urgency to get uh, guidance out uh, from AVA on exactly how ultrasound probe disinfection should be handled. And we'll be talking to Hudson shortly, but could you talk about uh, briefly before we get to, to that uh, discussion of what went into the document, how did that conversation start? Where did it come from? Conversation started through social media, surprisingly <laughs> enough. My good friend Shelly DeVries posted a draft of a guideline from another society. Mm -hmm. And that draft recommended high-level disinfection between patients for all ultrasound-guided procedures, regardless if you put a sheath on it. And that posed some huge problems for the people in our community. So we had to address it. Right. The deterrent of how cumbersome high-level disinfection would be versus the risk associated with perhaps low-level disinfection. And that's something that you ended up doing a full literature search, um, exhaustive amount of discussion with Hudson, with Ken, with, with others. To Other infection preventions, Frank Myers in San Diego, Kim Delahante, Shelley DeVries, other vascular access specialists. So we got down to the key players and the people that do this for a living. It's not an ivory tower document. It's actually something that can be used and operationalized and won't mm -hmm. stop your flow of practice. I can attest to that. Having seen the, the document and, and, and looked at it, you've got a very strong consensus voice from a variety of different stakeholders with not only what the recommendation is, but why it was made. Absolutely. And it's a real-world practical recommendation. It is. Looking forward to talking about that. So after the break, we'll have Dr. Garrett on to talk with Judy and Ken. Uh, but first, a word from our episode sponsor. The SecureCath subcutaneous engineered stabilization device is a revolutionary new method for catheter securement that does not require adhesives or sutures. The unique design of the SecureCath secures right at the insertion site and lasts for the life of the line. The SecureCath can dramatically decrease catheter migration and dislodgement, decrease catheter replacement costs, prevent medical adhesive-related skin injury or MARCI, reduce catheter complications, and lower the total cost of patient care. SecureCath for the life of the line. For more information, visit www.securacath.com. That's S-E-C-U-R-A. C-A-T-H. And we are joined now by Dr. Hudson Garrett, Jr. 
an infectious disease expert and the president of the board of directors of the Vascular Access Certification Corporation. Hudson, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ramsey? I'm good. I've got uh, Judy Thompson, Dr. Ken Simonson here. I'm going to pass the controls over to them in the captain's chairs, and you guys are going to discuss a high-level disinfection. Hi, Hudson. Hello. Hi, Hey, Hudson. Hi, Ken here. Nice to see you again. Uh, Ramsey, you as well. Thanks. Ramsey, thanks for the introduction. We're going to have a, a really a lively discussion, I hope, on the use of the ultrasound transducers in vascular access because there's some concern about the uh, risk of infection using these ultrasound probes and what level of disinfection is necessary to prevent transmission. So, Judy, I'm going to throw this out to you first of all. I've heard a lot of rumors regarding the guidelines for ultrasound probe disinfection, uh, and I don't really understand what is this 411? <laughs> the 411 on those, the information on it. So, Shelly DeVries, good friend of ours, put a um, draft version of a guideline out for just for review, saying, hey, yeah. folks, this is out there. And in that draft version, it recommended high-level disinfection for ultrasound probes when you use them for vascular access. That's mm. a huge concern for us and the folks that do what we do for a living because of there's a lot of reasons behind it, but one of the big problems with recommending high-level disinfection is that by doing that, we could negate or stop the drive towards using ultrasound for all vascular access insertions. Mm. Just because there's a lot of things to it, more so than just making sure the probe's clean. And, and Hudson, I know, will talk about this a little bit further as we, um, we talk about what Ava is doing about it. Yeah, that high-level disinfection, that's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. It's a big deal for, for vascular access. We're specialists in insertion, care, and maintenance of vascular access devices. But high-level disinfection and sterilization of medical devices, that's a specialty within itself. Wow. That we, in fact, until I read the draft guideline, yeah. I had never even considered high-level disinfection. I use ultrasound probes every day, and I don't even think about those things at all. There you so, go. Yeah. And I think that's true with everyone that I know within the vascular access world. Yeah, well, thanks to you and Hudson for bringing this to our attention, raising our level of, of uh, concern and also education in this regard. And thanks to Shelly. Honestly, she is yeah. a contributor that uh, on the document that, that Hudson and I authored together. Well, Shelly, if you're out there, you're listening, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, Judy, what is the short version of our meaning Ava's position <laughs> on probe disinfection then? Well, the short version is the risk-benefit of high-level disinfection versus low-level disinfection is Ava is going to re recommend low-level disinfection of ultrasound probes for the insertion of vascular access devices within the vascular access community, but with some caveats mm -hmm. and with some recommendations on how to do that safely to make sure that we don't transmit diseases between patients. So there'll be some caveats, there'll be some critical thinking that's involved in the, in the use of ultrasound probes? And guidance, and guidance. And I think that's, Hudson is, and has just been so helpful and adds so much expertise in bringing the infection prevention portion of this, this document to, to bring it to, to where it's a useful document and we can actually operationalize keeping the probe protected, mm -hmm. yet not sending it down to sterile processing every day. Yeah. Always the risk versus the benefits. Absolutely. Well, that's a good segue into asking Hudson a question. 
So Hudson, I've heard the term Spalding classification. And honestly, until I had this discussion with Judy, I had no idea what that even was. So I'm hoping that you can tell us what it is and how it might impact the practice of vascular access. Sure. So it's really a, a system that was designed by Dr. Spalding many years ago, looking at different categorization of medical devices and instrumentation and then the associated risk, but also what's the appropriate level to disinfect those particular devices. So if we take a blood pressure cuff, with obvious, which obviously everybody's familiar with, that's what's considered a non-critical item. It's an item that comes in contact with intact skin, and that device requires a low-level disinfection as a minimum. You take it a step above that, and you think about semi-critical devices, and probably one of the best examples are endoscopes, or laryngoscope blades, mm-hmm. um, vaginal ultrasound probes are another example. These are coming in contact with mucous membranes or non-intact skin, and so that's where the whole high-level disinfection piece comes in. And lastly, what Vascraxis uses a lot of are critical devices, which are things that come in a sterile pouch or sterile packaging. These are items that come in contact with sterile tissue or blood, so needles, syringes, all the things that we actually insert into the human body um, would fall within this categorization. And so it's really meant to be sort of a guideline for how do you do what for what. Um, And so it depends on the type of item, and, and then that way it gives you an idea of what's the appropriate level for disinfection for that. And so infection prevention and control and Biomed and and other uh, fields have used this for many years with great success to appropriately disinfect indoor sterilized devices. Hmm. So Spalding's been around for a long time, right, Hudson? It, it has, it has, and I think where this is coming up today is that there are adaptations, if you will, of the original Spalding classification, um, and that's really where this conversation came from. Was you know how do you deal with these vascular access? Um, devices that are used with ultrasound if if the skin is not intact. And so it does create an opportunity for discussion. Um, And as you mentioned earlier, it also creates an opportunity for really looking at a risk analysis for our patients to make sure that they're safe, our clinicians are safe, and we also properly maintain our equipment. Yeah, it's kind of interesting between a rock and a hard place. You're, You're scanning something initially has intact skin, but then you're doing something to somebody through that same probe or with that same probe that is now making the intact skin no longer intact, eh? Right, and I, I think one of the, the cool, I guess, correlations here is if you think, think about a glucometer, which, of course, we use on a daily basis with patients in acute care and non-acute care settings, that is probably the best correlation because the glucometer has actually been known to transmit hepatitis B virus. We've seen it actually happen. CDC's done outbreak investigation, wow. and yet that device is still considered non-critical, so it's a minimum of a low-level disinfection. Additionally, there's not actually any type of of sheath used on glucometers. And so we've made lots of alterations in our clinical practice where we can reduce that risk. And I think the same could be said for what we're talking about today, which is your ultrasound probes used for vascular access devices. Hmm. That's very interesting. Hmm. Why is proper cleaning and disinfection so important when reprocessing ultrasound probes used for insertion of vascular access devices anyways? Well, you know, when you think about the definition of cleaning, most clinicians don't actually understand the difference between cleaning and disinfection. So cleaning is, is simply the removal of bio burden or soil from a surface. It's actually not designed to inactivate or kill any microorganisms whatsoever. And so if you have something that's visibly soiled, like with blood or other body fluids, it needs to physically be removed from that surface first. That can be done with a, a cleaning product or a disinfectant product. And then the clinician should come behind that and actually do a formal disinfection process. Most often, they're going to use a low-level disinfectant wipe or spray or some type of soak. 
Um, and really, if you look at the CDC guidelines, they actually recommend even going above that and going to an intermediate level if possible. And so these are EPA-registered products that you can find readily on the U.S. market and are already available in hospitals and other healthcare facilities. So it's really just a matter of using a disinfectant that's already carried in your facility that's compatible with the specific ultrasound device. So Hudson, our guideline just got published, our, gui- our, our document of guidance on what to do with this. And there's, we, you and I have had a ton of discussion about the risk benefit of the recommendation Ava has given. I just want to kind of bounce off and play a little devil's advocate with you. So if we had gone high-level disinfection, if we said that's our recommendation, we're going to go, uh, you know, we're going to go the platinum route and say everybody has to go go through HLD, high-level disinfection, between patient use. What's that impact? Well, I mean, I think the impact is that you take away that technology from thousands of patients every single day. I mean, we know that the clinical benefit of ultrasound technology is tremendous with patient satisfaction and reducing patient pain overall, as well as, you know, vessel preservation. So I think I think that's on the benefit side. On, on the, the risk side, you know, if you have a device that's not properly cared for or you have vascular access clinicians that are not skilled and understanding the manufacturer's IFUs and doing the cleaning and disinfection, then there is theoretically that risk, uh, particularly for bloodborne pathogen transmission. And so that's really where this document comes in as serving sort of as a reference guide to vascular access clinicians across the world to say, here's sort of a summation of the clinical evidence that exists. Here are some of the steps that we strongly believe will actually make sure that patients are safe as well as the clinicians, but also preserve the um, integrity of the device. Because I think that's one of the biggest things with any medical devices for us to consider is that it's got to be properly maintained. If it's not, then that risk exponentially goes up and then we have a problem. And so the document is not meant to to be a one-size-fits-all, but really provide a very thorough guidance to work within your own facility and collaborate with infection prevention and control to actually address this issue in a very cautious yet pragmatic approach. Right. I think that's really important, the idea of being pragmatic, because we, we live in the real world. Um, and I want to uh, just say that I this has been very interesting to me, and I have another question that's a toss-up question for both of you to answer. Uh-oh. Here we so, go. So here you go. Either way you guys want to do it is fine with me. What level of disinfection is most appropriate, do you think, then, for ultrasound probes used for vascular access device insertion, and what should vascular access clinicians know specifically about this whole process? Well, Hudson, I think that is most appropriate right now for you, and I'll add a couple comments afterwards. How's that? Well, Ken, it looks like she turfed the question already. So, uh, <laughs> hey, I didn't. Wait, wait, wait. No, she's, no, let, no, <laughs> she's letting you open. She's going to close it. <laughs> that was so, good. I'll get you back. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I, I mean, I, I think when we think about most appropriate, there's there's two ways to answer that question. Um, I think there's a minimal expectation of low level disinfection, which is really what is stated in the CDC guidelines when you look at sort of that definition of non-critical items. I always tell people, though, from an infection prevention standpoint, to try to use an intermediate-level disinfectant when at all possible. Um, So minimum expectation is low-level. Preferred expectation is really intermediate-level. And and just so that everybody's clear, intermediate-level disinfection, the key difference there is efficacy against microbacterium. Microbacterium is a very resilient organism on environmental surfaces, including medical devices. The best-known sort of example of that category is microbacterium tuberculosis. Um, But certainly we're not concerned with TB living on environmental surfaces, but that family of organisms is extremely difficult to kill. 
And so if you're using an intermediate level disinfectant, which ironically is what most hospitals and healthcare facilities are already using, then that's going to give you your highest level of environmental disinfection without having to go to HLD. So really the big difference between that and HLD is simply going to be some of the bacterial spores. And so it really is going to give you the required um, protections that you're looking for as it relates to the risk analysis for vascular access insertion with ultrasound. Well, that's interesting. I didn't even know about the intermediate level and the micro. It was actually targeted exactly at mycobacterium. Correct, correct. And so, you know, I think that's that's something that most vascular access clinicians are not aware of, which leads sort of into the the second question that you asked, Ken, which was great. You know, what do people need to know? Um, as Judy rightfully mentioned at the beginning of this sort of discussion, that this is not an area of specialty for vascular access. We really rely on environmental services and infection preventionists to sort of guide this, but those times are changing. And if we're going to essentially be responsible for ultrasound equipment in our practice, we also need to know how to properly use it. So I, I look at it no different than before you administer a drug, you better know how that drug is gonna interact and work in the patient's body. We also need to understand how these devices can be properly clean and disinfected. And so that's really a collaborative conversation with environmental services, infection prevention, biomed, the manufacturer, as well as your materials management or clinical value analysis professionals, because nothing should get in your building unless it's got validated instructions for use for cleaning and disinfection with an EPA-registered germicide. And so that's really a big takeaway here and a homework action item for all of our members listening to this podcast. So Hudson, I just want to make sure that people listening to this that read the paper that we wrote that they understand the rigor we went through to make the recommendation because there are other organizations out there that talk about high-level disinfection for the same procedures we're recommending low-level. So um, just real briefly, I want you to go through what you did, and I know I did a thorough lit review and Cochrane review, but so did you. So let's walk through that just a little bit so they understand that this wasn't an arbitrary decision because it may be seen as easier, but this was evidence-based. Well, I know Judy's been working on this a long time because I'm waiting for her so we can do the CVAD manual, and she's been doing this for weeks. So I know she's worked really hard on it. So please, let, let's hear what, what you guys have done. This is important. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think when Judy and I had an initial conversation about this, we looked at sort of what is that that question, that clinical question that's posed, which is what's the appropriate level of disinfection for these devices? Um, comparing that to what's existing in the literature, I think the best example, as I mentioned before, is glucometers. And then looking at not only the clinical guidelines, but as Judy mentioned, doing an extensive literature search. Um, from that, that led us to many different um, opinions that came out in the literature search. And some were on the side of HLD, some were on the side of, of low-level disinfection, some were right in the middle, and some quite frankly didn't know. Um, and so from that, we had conversations with colleagues at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as some other colleagues at the University of Louisville School of Medicine Division of Infectious Disease, um, to really look at a pragmatic approach to this. I, I think that m much of this work has been started in another area that's tangentially related, which is vaginal ultrasound probes, which do require HLD because they're obviously coming in contact routinely with mucous membranes. And so there's been a lot of discussion that's been started there. But really, I think the most important thing for the members to know is that this was a careful balance of what does the science say? What, what is the risk that we know is present? What is the documented, um, I, I guess, incidence of outbreaks, which there haven't been really 
um, specific ones associated with this. And then what do we think makes the most sense to protect the patient as well as our clinicians? And that's really where this, this guidance document came out. And that's, that's the key. That's why it's a guidance document and not a guideline. You know, AVA is coming together with different um, resources to, to provide our members with specific evidence-based recommendations of what they should do their own practice, but also to bring them to a bigger um, conversation with other stakeholders at the table in their institution, like infection control. Because each time we face these issues, it arms us for doing even better things with our patients. And as the clinical technologies increase, our acuity changes for our patients, we too have to change and rise to that occasion and and broaden our specialties knowledge and include infection prevention and control in that expertise. Thanks, I agree. I think one of the things my wish list would be is for a process that would give better efficacy to the disinfection of probes. Because right now I've inserting devices, I was never taught how to disinfect a probe. I teach these procedures and I I don't teach, or I hadn't in the past, I can guarantee you in the future I will, but I never taught another clinician the proper way to disinfect a probe. This has not been on anyone's radar until now. So one, uh, a process or manufacturers that hopefully are listening to this that will find a process or a device that will help us clean these more thoroughly, education that will get our clinicians to, to clean these better, and then possibly device or some sort of manufactured device that from patient to, to patient that could be a bedside HLD type device. I mean, if I could do my dream, it would be almost like a bucket that as we go from patient to patient, I could have my probe sitting in before till I see my next patient. Squeegee it yeah. out. Then we won't have an issue. Obviously. Then we won't have an issue. Yeah. I know. And then what are we going to do? Yeah. We'll find a new one, no well, doubt. Until then, I think we have to do what medical professionals uh, do all the time or should do all the time, and that is use good judgment, use common sense, and use critical thinking. And, and the best the, evidence we can find. And the best evidence we can find and do the right thing, what you would want to have done to one of your loved ones. That's the best and thing ever. Get, and still get the job done. One of the loved ones you love, for yeah. sure, and like, and like. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Hudson, I can't thank you enough for popping on the call and, and joining us on this and, and honestly co-authoring this paper with me. This has been a great experience, and I can't wait to do more. If you'd like to hear a full interview with Dr. Hudson Garrett, you can as an AVA member benefit. Just visit avainfo.org slash podcast. When we return from break, we'll hear from Melissa Chittle, an author of an article published in the summer issue of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. And a bit later, we'll get you caught up on all the upcoming AVA network events and much more. Stay tuned. this week's Beyond the Manuscript segment of the I Save That podcast, I'm joined by Melissa Chittle, a physician's assistant and the lead advanced practice provider in the interventional radiology department at our hospital, and also the lead author of the article titled, Utilizing a Sedation Decision Aid in Ambulatory Venous Access Device Placement, Effects on Patient Choice, Workup, and Recovery Time, which was recently published in the summer version of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. Melissa, how are you this morning? 
I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day uh, to sit down and chat with me about the research and the article you and your team put together on the sedation decision aid. So let's start right there. I'm really curious about uh, sort of the genesis of your decision to create uh, this, this decision aid. I know it came as a follow-up to an initial publication uh, that you guys did on the shared decision-making process uh, as the standard of care with regards to the levels of sedation for individual patients on a case-by-case basis. But what made you see that uh, putting together this decision aid was really the next necessary move? Well, it's a great question. So typically in our department, we put in um, totally implanted venous access devices for patients who require long-term venous punctures, where they're going to be constantly receiving a medication through an IV. And in order to prevent them from having to constantly get a venous puncture, we put in these totally implanted venous access devices called ports. Um, And we do thousands of them a year. And I had one patient one day who presented to the department for their port, and she looked terrified. And so I immediately said to her, oh, you know, don't worry. I'm going to sedate you, put you to sleep. You'll be pleasantly unconcerned. You'll wake up. This will all be over. And she looked at me, and she said, it's not my cancer diagnosis, the chemotherapy, the radiation, or the surgery that scares me the most. What scares me the most is sedation and that feeling of a loss of control and being out of it. She's like, that is what is terrifying me. And so I looked at her because typically we always sedate patients. We never ask them their their opinions or preferences. And so I said, well, I guess we could try this without doing sedation. Sure. And it was the first time I ever performed this procedure without utilizing any type of sedation. And when really? it was finished, the patient absolutely raved about it. She said that was absolutely tolerable. I'm so glad you were able to do that for me. It was a wonderful experience, and um, it was consistent with what I was was hoping for and would prefer. Um, and that was the eye opener. First off, to just think that there might be different preferences, that patients' preferences for sedation might be very varying, and not just what we do as an institution or what I do as a provider. So that was the impetus for even employing shared decision making. Um, and it was right around that time that the Decision Sciences Center at our institution was putting on a course about how to do shared decision making and how to create tools. And so it just oh, all nice. kind of worked together that I then got that email like later that day or something and um, signed up for the course. And then during the course, I knew this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn how to do the shared decision making with patients, offering them options for sedation um, because there are options. There's options from doing it with just local anesthetic to just having a little of mild sedation or minimal sedation, which is just an anxiolytic like a benzodiazepine to doing a procedure with what we call um, procedural sedation, which is a combination of medications to make patients pleasantly unconcerned and relax and that's versus fentanyl but there are three options there and they all have you know risks and benefits and reasons for choosing or not to choose so it just everything kind of worked out perfectly that all happened in that um, around that same time so I took the course and that was um, how I learned to do shared decision making mm-hmm. and how to create a tool um, to help do it because I think that um, you know that helps ensure that you're consistently doing it the same way every time and that you're, um, it really can help support um, it, it being implemented in your daily practice when you have a tool and an aid that is given to patients, reminds you to do it and, and helps really support the conversation. So That's, that was the whole impetus of, of doing this and then designing an aid to help with it. It sounds like it was a, a perfect timing and also yes. a fabulous way to continue to put the patients first. And, and that's, Absolutely. you know, what we want to, 
you know, protect the patient at all costs. So that sounds like a terrific um, standard of care there. And, and I understand that the portion of this tool you gave patients asked them to rate five separate common features of importance yes. to them. So, so what were those five tiers? And can you tell me a little bit about them? Absolutely. So um, there was basically five statements that appeared kind of as the first thing on decision aid, almost just to help frame it in the patient's mind about what things, get a sense of what might be important to them. Um, and the way we came up with these five different statements is actually um, some feedback from patients about things that they actually were hoping for. When I used to you know, do more of an open discussion. What were your goals for today? What were you hoping for? These were some of the things that patients actually said to me. Um, and so that's why I ended up using them on the decision because These were real-life um, comments that patients were making. So those five um, statements that we presented right immediately on the decision aid are, first off, I don't want to feel groggy or out of it. I sure. frequently heard that from patients. And so I had them write that as, is that something that is not important to you or is that very important? Mm -hmm. The second one was, I want to be as awake, awake as long as I don't feel pain. Again, a common thing that patients would say to me, and so I had them rank that from not important to very important. The next one is I don't want a long recovery time. Often these patients have multiple visits scheduled at our institution that day, and it's a very busy day. And that actually is usually something very important to many patients is I want to be able to get to the next point appointment, or I don't want my family and friends to be waiting. So again, I asked them to rate that. Um, the next one was I want to be drowsy and wake up and the procedure is over. Very common statement to yeah. that patients want that um, and again they would rate that not important to very important and the last one was I want to be able to drive or work today and often patients who are coming for these procedures they have had multiple medical visits they have already had significant time away from activities and work and have depended on um, a support system to help get them through this but there is patients who want to finally be able to do things after they you know their appointment to continue to try and function and carry out their daily life so that was a thing we constantly heard so they again would rate that. So that's kind of how we um, did that. Yeah, that's those are all worth really worthwhile questions. And I know that a lot of that can hit home, especially with patients, as you mentioned, who continue to come to hospitals time and again yeah. um, for different procedures and visits and other appointments. Um, so were there any sort of hiccups or challenges that you faced when you put together this idea and, and started your research? Yeah, so so that was very interesting and a great question because, um, you know, we were basically changing the entire philosophy of an institution in the department by doing this. You know, we looked at a, um, you know, a historical sample of patients who had come to IR to have these brief procedures, these port account placements. Basically, the majority always, almost the majority of the time, I would say about 83% or more, always had sedation for the procedure because nobody asked them what they would like to have. Um, it was the standard for the department that it was just the philosophy that, of course, patients would want to be sedated for this, right. and that was the assumption. Um, and so no one asked them. So when you look back, it's it's staggering to see that that was always what was done. The, the reason it wouldn't have been done in the past when we looked was simply because we found that a patient um, was not appropriate or the risks of sedation um were too high, and so we weren't even offering it to them. But that was typically the only resort they had eaten. They were totally not an eligible candidate. And so it was, you know, the, the norm that patients were always sedated. And so the entire philosophy of the department is that that is how the procedure is done. And so it was interesting to try and um, educate people about shared decision-making and about this, 
um, kind Institute of show the them idea. that there are yeah. pr- different preferences out there. And so uh, it's it was met with resistance initially of people saying, well, this can't possibly be the best care to not sedate somebody. You know, that the nurses in the room, the technologists in the room too, were, were speaking up and voicing, I'm concerned about not sedating someone. Are they going to be too uncomfortable? Is this going to be a horrific experience for them? And so it did. That's the challenges we met of more making sure we're educating the group about the benefits of this. Um, so I would go to different meetings for the different teams, um, the nurses meeting or the technologists meeting and, and, and present about what we were doing here and the data that had shown kind of high satisfaction with it and had shown how there were variable preferences um, and that by not sedating patients, we aren't withholding optimal care. We're actually enhancing the level of care and making it more patient-centered. And so that's where I actually found a little bit of, of pushback as we as we did something new and different, uh, was just getting you know people to, to buy into it, but just to show them how it was really, really benefiting the patients. Because their concern is always usually for the patients, and this is truly right. um, you know, giving the patient the best the best care for their individual needs. Right. So that's that was very interesting to run into kind of that as it being more as a team resistant. The patients have been very happy with it. Um, the other issue I always run into is, is when you're doing a process change, um, it's just making sure that it remains consistent. You know, you always get excited, start something new, right, and then yeah. it's just making sure it's built in to, you know, be there now indefinitely. And so that's just, it needs to become part of the workflow and ingrained. So yeah. um, always working on that whenever you develop something new and that just kind of continuing to do it every day, continue to remind people to give the uh, decision aid to the patient as they come to the department. It's just, it's reminders until it becomes the norm. Definitely. And it kind of seems like a nice segue into my, my last question and I'll get you out on here on this. Uh, yeah. As far as what kind of objectives or what's your goal that you want readers of your article, you know, other physicians or nurses to take away um, after they see your research and, and with this decision aid. Yeah, I, I think the most eye-opening thing to us was that patient sedation preference is variable, and and I had no idea. You're, I've been doing this for years without ever asking a patient their preference, and so um, the thing I would want providers or readers to, to take from this is that, you know, they're... There are things that patients might have a preference for that it's not consistent with what you might want, and, and I might be the first to say I would maybe want to be sedated for these procedures, but right. that's me reflecting what my values are, my preferences are, and so it's um, really eye-opening to just simply ask patients about their preference because you'll be amazed at um, what you find. And like I said, we went down from, you know. Um, the majority of the patients always being sedated to less than half. Like we cut that in half, so it's 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 amazing how preferences are not what you might think. Um, so that's the first thing, and then the second thing that was really astounding to me was the impact on departmental flow. And I think for us to see recovery room times, the chance this is we have a huge bottleneck in our recovery room with patients just um, you know recovering after sedation, and this can take um, up to ninety minutes um, to just wear off the effects of sedation, and what we saw by simply asking patients their preferences they more uh you know the less likely they're less likely to choose that higher level of sedation and as a result they recover for less amount of time and we were now seeing recovery times you know um 
a couple minutes, like less than half an hour compared to 90 minutes. Wow. So that was incredible for our department flow and turnover and the satisfaction of the nurses in the recovery room saying how easy it was to do discharge planning and discussion because patients weren't heavily sedated. So that was more of a, we didn't expect that, but that was incredible, especially if people are trying to make things as efficient and, and get patients in and out quickly on to the next thing. Um, I thought that was really neat. So I would, yeah. you know, I think that's important to share with other practices as they think about this and they're facing bottlenecks and production pressures to get patients in and out that this was just a, a natural result of this decision aid and it, it was really really helpful for yeah the entire that's flow. that's a staggering uh, statistic you know down from over 90 minutes to 30 minutes or less yeah. so yeah. that's that's really fabulous so i really want to thank you again for joining me melissa um it's great to chat with you about this and um, for listeners, you can read the article on this sedation decision aid at avajournal.com slash current. It is online and has been published. Um, and for AVA members specifically and other subscribers to the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access, your hard copy of the 2018 summer issue is currently being printed and mailed. So check your inboxes um, for those soon if, you haven't, if they haven't reached you already at the time of publication of this podcast. So thanks again, Melissa. It was great to chat with you. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. This week is the World Congress of Vascular Access biannual meeting in Copenhagen, Denmark. So if you happen to be in the neighborhood, please consider attending. Ava will have a strong presence there. Now stateside on June 21st in Portland, Oregon, Orvan is meeting at the Legacy Emanuel Hospital at 6 p.m. For information, please email Orvan, the number two, at gmail.com. That's Orvan2 at gmail.com. On Monday, June 25th in Nashville, Tennessee, Nashvan is meeting at Ruth's Chris. And the speaker is Dr. Jack Ledun. For information, please email nashvantn at gmail.com. And on Thursday, June 28th in Honolulu, Aloha Van is meeting at Gordon Biersch Brewery for a dinner sponsored by B. Braun. For more information, please email alohavan at gmail.com. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website, which is www.avainfo.org. And you can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. You can read the AVA position paper on ultrasound probe disinfection that was discussed on this episode on the AVA website as well, which is where you can also join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. On an upcoming episode, we'll have Hudson and Judy back to discuss how to share this new guidance and implement it inside of your facilities. So make sure you subscribe to the I Save That podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud so that episode drops right onto your phone. Thanks again to SecureCath for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Hudson Garrett, Melissa Chittle, and thanks as always to Dabney Coleman. The information discussed on the I Save That podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. 
The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.